eve of the 103rd PGA Championship, Rory, Brooks, Will, JT, Xander, and more. Plus, we're going to be joined by a World Golf Hall of Fame member. That and more coming up on the Fairways of Life Worldwide. Welcome to the most listened to golf in the world, the Fairways of Life show, on air, online, and around the world. With the most candid interviews, unforgettable stories, taking you beyond the ropes. Here's your host, New York Times best-selling author and Golf Channel's Matt Adams. I'm not sure if there was a single turning point, I think kind of a progression of you know finding finding some feels that allowed me to um, stand comfortably over the ball and hit a shot under pressure and then um, doing that uh, for multiple days in a row and then having that happen a couple tournaments in a row so it's back to that Phoenix pebble time frame where I kind of thought man okay I, I know it's not where I want it to be um, but it doesn't need to be uh, for me to at least tap into how to, you know, contend out here. And um, I think it was kind of that, that two-week time frame that was really big for me. Uh, I do. I really like Pete Dye golf courses. Um, I've, I don't think I've fared extremely well on them because they have to be played with such patience. And um, when it's a major, I feel like I, I do a better job of that in general, just kind of getting into the tournament at a more patient level. You don't really see guys, you know, start out shooting, you know, 63, like last week. Um, um, so I think I just find a better way of, of being patient. But that's been kind of my th- – and just the imagination you have to have around the greens, the tough spots you can get to, and variety of shots that need to be played from there. Um, yeah, I think, you know, again, you just have to really – on Pete Dye golf courses, you just got to be – you just got to wait for your chances. I mean, you just – you think something's a good look, but then if you miss it by a couple yards the wrong side – you know, you're, you're really in trouble. So um, he does a good job of kind of making you kind of think you're in, you know, the, the A spot. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you just barely miss it and you end up in a, in a, in a tough location to make par. So um, this week I think it will be more about hitting middle of greens and then taking advantage of par fives. Can't speak to other players, but to, for myself, I, length, I haven't looked at the length of a golf course since junior golf. I mean, for us it just – Things change. The wind will make, you know, 515-yard holes play driver nine iron, you know, just if it's downwind and it gets firm. Um, I've heard the back nine stretches to almost 4,000 yards, which – and then today Matt Jones came to the range and he said – he goes – he just kind of let out a sigh. He's like, man, 14 through 18 was all you want today. Um, so I know, you know, obviously taking advantage of the downwind holes and hanging on for dear life into the wind out here, um, the holes will play – obviously much longer when you turn into the breeze and then much shorter downwind, more so than other golf courses when they, you get, um, when they can get firm and fast and the ball's going to chase out. So I think picking clubs off tees, picking lines off tees are going to be important, and I would have liked to have seen the golf course a few times, um, and it just wasn't a possibility this year for me. So I'm um, going to need to do a lot of good work the next two days. Okay, we're going to zoom out to Dan. Jordan, you mentioned about trying to peak at majors. How, how much is the career Grand Slam weighing on your mind this week? How much is the Grand Slam what? Sorry? How much weighing? is the career Grand Slam um, it's not, weighing on you? It's not. I mean, I think, you know, as we get into the weekend, if I'm able to work my way into contention, I think it's something that will obviously be asked and come up, and it's something that 
I certainly um, want, but I mean, you go to a major, and for me at this point, it's, you know, I want to win the Masters as badly as I ever have this year. Didn't happen. I want to win this one as badly as I ever have, you know, and then once you move on to um, the U.S. Open, the same. Um, majors are, uh, yeah, again, like like you mentioned, um, that's what we're here, we're trying to peak for those, and uh, I feel like I'll have a, a lot of chances at this tournament, and if I just focus on trying to take advantage of this golf course, play it the best I can, and kind of stay in the same form tee to green I've been in, um, all I can ask for is a chance. I'm kind of at this point measuring myself off of feels and freedom, um, playing golf from a position where um, I feel comfortable stepping over this shot. You know, I'm I'm embracing this long iron into a green under pressure versus oh shoot, you know, where's this thing going to go? Um, I think that's more versus like actually drawing back on results from previous years. Because to be honest, people always look at 2015. I was actually a better player in 2017, but everyone just looks at results. Not I had a lower scoring average. I was better tee to green. Um, I was a better player. I just happened to, you know, DJ wins in a playoff or I'd have had another win. That, you know, like just the timing of when it happened um, didn't lead to the amount of results like. Um, a couple more wins and another major in 15. Um, so it's just, I, I'm more, um, it's more like the f- playing with freedom um, for me, regardless of results, because I know if I'm playing with freedom that um, I have the confidence level and the skill set to be able to compete in the biggest tournaments. I mean, I, that's where I can draw back on um, previous times. I, I, I know what I did well and what were weapons for me in the past that I didn't know. I just kind of just played but when I got under pressure I got into tendencies and didn't really know why and it's hard to explain to like your coach because um, he's just seeing the reaction in the ball flight but he doesn't know why it you know maybe felt different during the swing and now I kind of am starting to figure out um, that situation so um, I'm still quite a bit of ways away from where I want to be in my golf swing and in the performance and the feels um, but it's getting closer and the closer it gets the more I'm able to trust those shots I was talking about and the more that kind of gets rid of those, not only gets rid of the scar tissue, but um, but can actually kind of prove advantageous under pressure. I mean, I hit, it was for how I kind of felt over the ball um, under pressure in San Antonio, I mean, I hit some of the better tee shots under pressure that I've ever hit just by knowing my game a little bit better and being able to compensate for those um, um, kind of tendencies that I have. So ideally that just gets better and better. Jordan Spieth amongst those who addressed the media yesterday. I'm going to go through some notable tee times which were also released to the world and let you know who's teeing off when including Jordan Spieth who you just heard from. There are many more as you heard me tease at the top of the show that you're going to be hearing from coming up in the Fairways of Life show today and we're going to be joined live by a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame and a multiple time major champion, including the PGA Championship. All right, let's start with morning tee times tomorrow. 7.38 a.m., Adam Scott, Terrell Hatton, and Ricky Fowler at 8 a.m., Francesco Amolinari, Zach Johnson, Scotty Scheffler at 8.17, Keimer, Schwartzel, and Bradley at 8.22. It's going to be Westwood, Shroffley, and Hovland at 8.33. How about this group, folks? Rory, Brooks, and JT, you're going to hear from all three of those coming up today, uh, Rory and JT, a little bit later on in the program. 8.44 a.m., defending champion Colin Murakawa 
Hideki Matsuyama and Bryson DeChambeau in that traditional grouping. In the afternoon, let's pick up some of the groups. 8.50 or 12.52 p.m., Answer, Homa, and Burns at 11, no, check that, 103. Connors, Fitzpatrick, and Finau at 114. Mickelson, Padre Harrington, eh, he spoke yesterday too. You'll hear from him coming up. Uh, and Jason Day at 125. Patrick Reed, John Rahm, and Tommy Fleetwood at 136. Lee Westwood, Cam Smith, Justin Rose. I still think the winner could come from that group right there. At 147, Berger. Stricker and Horschel, Dom said to me this morning, he said, interesting that Steve Stricker's playing with Daniel Berger and, and Billy Horschel. Hmm. At 158, Webb Simpson, there's Jordan Spieth and Will Zalatoris. Spieth, as you heard talking to the media, is trying to become the sixth player ever to win the career Grand Slam. He won the 2015 Masters Tournament the 2015 U.S. Open, the 2017 Open, and he's making his fifth start at the PGA Championship since the 2017 Open. He went tied for 28th in 2017, tied for 12th in 2018, tied for third in 2019, and tied for 71st last year. The other career Grand Slam winners, Gene Sarazen, Ben Hogan, Gary Player, Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods. Hello, hello, hello. All right, other times. At 2.09, Shane Lowry, DJ and Sergio at 2.20, Cantlay, Matt Kuchar, uh, and Thomas Peters. Just giving you some, some notables as to when they are teeing off. Now, you heard me mention the name John Rahm. He, too, addressed the media yesterday. Let's find out what he was thinking on the eve of this PGA Championship. As a fan of Pete Dye golf courses, you kind of know what to expect, right? You get to the tee, you expect the fairway that... You're not really going to see deceiving off the tee, very deceiving to the eye in every single shot. Much like TPC Sawgrass, you know, it's like you have a shape off the tee and another shape coming into the green. It's a true ball strikers golf course, and, uh, you know, I enjoy the challenge, and I, I typically really enjoy Pete Dye golf courses. So, I mean, I can't wait to play the front nine, which I haven't played yet, and, and get it going this week. All right. He's here now. Uh, it's six weeks. It, it definitely changes. Uh, you know, once... He was born, and even before, I could feel priorities, you know, just starting to shift. And this is a shift that happens in you from going from uh, just regular 26-year-old man to now being a father, right? There's a big shift in priorities, and that's what's going on. Obviously, I still got to prioritize my career to provide for my family and, and do what I do. And I think that's been the hardest part when I'm home, right? Because I wake up early, he's usually waking up, and... You know, I hold them on my arms, and the last thing I want to do is leave to go work out or leave to go pot or leave to go practice, especially those early days, right? Going to Augusta was was not easy three days after he was born. And I guess you can say still the early days. Uh, so I think just really, especially in tournaments, I'm glad he came last week to know that you know, I'm here to do a job. I'm here to practice. I'm here to play. And then once I'm done with my whole day, I get home now, it's, is that time, which at the same time is wonderful. You know, I get home, and I forget about what's going on around me. So I forget that we're at Kiowa Island. I forget that we're at a major, and I forget what the mission is. And it's also really refreshing for the mind. Uh, the feeling of presence that I have when I'm with him is unique. So, um, you know, it can only be a good thing for me as a person, as a career. I mean, one of the things when you're out on the ocean uh, and you have a humid place, you have a, a lot more dense air, right? So 
what a 10 mile an hour wind might be here is definitely going to be stronger than a 10 mile an hour wind in some places inland, right? So you got to account for that. Uh, you got to club up, you got to you know adjust to it, and that's just playing a couple of practice rounds. You might be able to get an idea of how much is hurting or helping the ball because some of the downwind holes, the ball is going a very long way. So uh, I think that's one of the challenges, right? Being able to commit to the club you have, even though you might be hitting way longer clubs than you used to on certain distances into the wind. Um, and again, I think that the biggest challenge when you have a place like this that's narrow targets and windy and narrow because it's windy um, is just having a clear picture and you know full commitment on the shot. Right, it's is what you got to do. You got to pick a shot and be fully committed to it. Otherwise, it's going to be impossible to get around this golf course. And uh, as a player, I think that's the biggest challenge. Right, when you have a lot of ideas in mind and a lot of options, uh, picking one and sticking to it and, and trying to execute the best possible. Thank you. You were one of the few golfers who were involved in the collaboration with the LPGA and Michelle Wee in the hoodie for golf. I'm just curious how that came to be and how you see how important it is to have those type of cross collaborations between the PGA and LPGA tours. Well, to be honest, uh, I'm not on social media all that much. I actually don't have it on any of the social media platforms on my phone. So uh, I was told about it right before I made the video and, you know, seemed like a no brainer to support the cause. Uh, I was also told she pulled some strengths and some of the NBA players are wearing that hoodie as well. And I think, uh, if I believe there's something going on in, in many other sports as well, right? Uh, you see the male side supporting the females. I've seen a lot of NBA players wearing the jerseys from the female players from that same town. I think I've seen a couple other times where I believe, I forgot what it was for, where Real Madrid soccer players supported the Real Madrid female soccer players in some instances. So it's all for the growth of the game, right? And I've said many times, if I can do a little bit of what some players in the past did for the game outside playing, uh, it would be an accomplished goal. So if you can just grow the game, whether it's for male or females, I think it's a mission accomplished, right? And, uh, you know, that's what we're here for. And we're only la- not only just players. Uh, we're ambassadors of the game. And I think Arnold, Jack, Tiger, Phil, Sevi, they all did a great job in that outside the golf course as well. And some of them are still doing it. So it's uh, I take it as a bit of a duty to be able to grow the game, um, you know, whether it's just for men or women, obviously trying to include as many people as possible. Odds? John Rahm, 125, he'll be teeing off uh, tomorrow afternoon. So uh, Dom's looking up the odds, and John Rahm will get to that as well. Uh, maybe we'll bump into it when we talk about Brooks Kepka. I'm curious how high he is up on the, on the odds as well, because that's who you're going to be hearing about next. Dom, were you able to pull up those odds as I was barking for them at the last second? Yeah, no, John Rahm is currently the second favorite, if you will. Um, if you're watching on the TV side, you can see the, the current odds right now the PG, for the PG, PGA Championship. The favorite is still Roy McIlroy, who you will hear from later in the program. He did speak yesterday. 10.53 to 1 right now. And John Rahm, there he is right there, right after Rory. 12.39 to 1 to win the PGA Championship. And I will say, I'll just make a very brief comment. Yes. That, as, as always. Uh, at major championships, I, I listen to all the press conferences because I'm a golf nerd. I, I mean, I'm just like you. I just can't get enough. And I make judgments on players based on how I think their demeanor is in these press yes. conferences. Yes, Fairly or unfairly. I just come to – I just draw conclusions almost immediately. I go, oh, man, look at him. He's tired. It looks like crap. There's no, he's got no so chance. So what are you or reading from John Rahm? He's, he's getting up with the baby too much? From John, I think John Rahm is in a great place right now. 
Uh, but as you heard, he's got a new baby at home. I think he has a lot on his plate right now. And I don't think that he's in the right frame of mind to contend this week. My opinion. Right. Additionally, and so you'll hear later in the show, I believe that Rory McRoy and Jordan Spieth are locked in. They are ready to go. And I fully expect both of them to contend. So and you I would liked be Jordan's absolutely body shocked. language? I, I, I liked all of it. And I, I like where his he wasn't mind doing that is. twitchy thing with the shoulders that he does all the time. Well, he's always doing that. He wasn't doing <laughs> it's it as just much the thing though. He has. Yeah, I just think that his 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 mental place right now is where it needs to be. It feels more like 2017 Jordan in terms of where he is mentally, which for him, maybe you disagree, but for him, uh, I think that's the difference always is what's going on up there. And Rory is just settled right now, and I think he's really in a very good place. And so I fully expect both of them to be in contention on Sunday, which is good for business, as they say, Matt. <laughs> Rory coming up a little bit later on in the program. Uh, odds for Brooks Kepka, please, Don? Uh, Brooks Kepka is standby. He is 28.26 to 1. 28.26 to 1. Remember, golfoddstracker.com, where these odds come from, the reason why there are decimal points on those odds is because they're coming from different betting houses all over the world. Uh, and the reason why that is done is so that you won't get a biased uh, accounting in terms of the, the odds. It's a global basis of the odds, not just one betting house. All right, so for Brooks Kepka, he says, sure, the pain's going to be there. I'll deal with the pain. I'll just see if I can find the shots that I need to hit. If you don't like that, he will punch you in the face. I think there's um, a lot of options off the tee where uh, maybe driver isn't exactly the play. Um, but if you can fit it up there um, and not kind of put it in the rough, it's it's a big advantage. Um, you know, you're going to miss quite a few greens, especially if this wind's blowing. Um, and you could leave yourself some difficult chips around the green, so you got to be real tidy around there. But I really like this golf course. I think it sets up really well for me and I'm uh, excited. No, I feel like I can hit every shot. It's not... It's not like Augusta where I'm trying to figure out what's the best line to walk instead of figuring out what, you know, now I can actually hit golf shots. I understand what's going on. Um, you know, for a while it was just a neglected putting just to see if I could hit shots because if I can't hit shots, I can't play. So no point in that. But now i got everything under control. Um, I know what, uh, know what I'm doing. And, you know, last week was a good test just to see where I'm at for two days. Um, I thought if I got four, it would be – It'd be nice, but um, two days of rest didn't, didn't hurt me. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up a club till a week before last week. So uh, I was out in L.A. doing a bunch of rehab. Um, did some rehab at, at, at my house um, with my physio, Mark. He came down for about a week and then went to maybe a week and a half and then went to um, went to L.A. just to continue rehab for about another week and a half. So, um, yeah, I was busy doing that, and that was kind of my first priority. Otherwise, I wouldn't be wouldn't be out here. When I came back, when I started hitting balls, um, I found that all the way through about 7-iron, I was fine. And then anything above 7-iron, occasionally, I just wouldn't – I'd go to push off my right leg, and it wouldn't – there's just nothing there. Um, happened a couple times last week, but it, it's only with driver – um, and it's not, it's getting less and less every day. I play on it every day. I'm doing rehab. Um, and now it seems that driver's the only club where it might do it. 
and instead of being you know one out of every ten times, now it's like one out of every twenty. So um, every day it's getting better and better, um, and you know we'll see where it's at. Brooks, what was the doctor's timeline for you to be healthy? Like a hundred percent? Yeah. Yeah, we're talking probably another six months. Probably. What's your timeline to be a hundred percent? Ahead of that, if I beat that, I'm doing something good. I mean, I can play. It's not. You're never a hundred percent. That's the thing. I mean, for two straight years, it's been left knee, right knee. Um, you know, two or herniated a disc in my neck. You know, played in, in what was it, Tampa or wherever wherever we were. Um, you know, played through that. You know, I, I dealt with that all the way through Palm Springs. So, I mean, I can deal with the pain. That's not an issue. Um, it's just a matter of being able to hit shots that I want to hit and do things I want to do. And I'm starting to be able to do that, even though I'm not 100. percent I can still. I can still hit the shots. It's just part of the process. Uh, just deal with it one day at a time. I'm not really looking at you know why things happened. Um, not looking at you know getting down on myself. I could. It's one of those things where you just gotta move on and you know try to make every day you know the next day better than the day before. And I've done a good job at it. I don't. I don't think too much of. You know, is it gonna? If I do this, is it gonna be? Um, painful if not you know you just got to go back to what you've naturally done for 20 some years and if it doesn't work it doesn't work you know if firing off my right side doesn't work sometimes it doesn't um and it probably for the next month it'll probably be the same i'll still go fire off a driver and it still won't go but um if it just keeps getting better and better um you know instead of one out of every 20 it's one out of every 100 um, i'm okay with that dom is not buying brooks kepka's body language on this one. He'll be teeing off at 8.33 a.m. tomorrow morning alongside of JT and Rory. You're just not with it there, Dom. You were complaining the entire time. You're like, look at him. No, I'm not. Oh, don't try to deny it now that you're on the air. Like, Listen, I'm not going to waste everybody's time. Here's what I'll say. You've been wasting everyone's time for I don't think Brooks Kepka is healthy. I don't think Brooks Kepka is healthy, and I don't understand why he just doesn't shut it down for six months or a year. I mean, Andrew's showing some video without sound right now. You can see his body language, and he answered a lot of questions about his injury. Did you or did you not, as we were coming back on the air after his – did you or did you not say that you should be his mental coach? Well, I was joking, but what I would tell him is to shut it down. I would say, listen, man. Dom, do you realize you would be the worst mental coach of all time? No, I'd be good. You would be the worst be mental coach ever. Even Andrew's on the ground laughing over here when you said, no, I'd be a good mental coach. It'd be like, hey, Dom, I'm not feeling really Why would I be a about bad man? You'd be like, yeah, you've got no chance. <laughs> I mean, that, that, would be, that would be what I would tell him. So listen, Brooks, you're, you're, you're not healthy. So go You'd be home a great mental coach, and get Dom, healthy. Yeah. Be like, hey, Dom, you know I'm, I mean? I'm just, I don't feel... I don't feel confident that I can get what I need to get done. You'd be like, yeah, I can't see it happening either. Me either. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that assessment. So a news, a news uh, piece came out yesterday <laughs> that said that the Super Golf League representatives are apparently on the grounds at the PGA Championship trolling around trying to talk to agents. And Lee Westwood, amongst the things that he was asked at his press conference was, Hey, dude, if the Super Golf League offered you $50 million, would you go that direction? Here's Lee. It's kind of like most courses up and down this coastline. You know, it's uh, 
There's penalties for hitting it offline, which is great. And, uh, you know, the, the, the greens are good. Some, the good variation of them, some upturned saucers, some, you know, where the ball gathers in. Um, obviously, there's, there's always a bit of breeze, which you have to control your ball flight and your spin. And um, I guess it's a, um, a good striker of the golf, ball, uh, golf ball's got kind of golf course, really. Um, at the same time, you need a good short game because... I don't think you're going to hit as many greens as normal. I think it comes out as one of the hardest golf courses on tour. And, uh, you know, you just have to have a good all-round game, really. Yeah, good. Uh, played all right last week. Um, just managed to scrape into 21st with 15 under. And, uh, um, yeah, I like, I like the way I'm swinging it, hitting it. And, uh, yeah, all, every part of my game feels, feels good. Uh, I needed a three weeks off after Hilton Head and... Uh, Came back refreshed and ready to go again. And last week was good prep for this week. I think there's pluses and minus for, minuses for everything. I think, uh, you know, they've obviously got a mo lot of money and they've come out and sent a few shockwaves about and uh, people feel threatened. So, uh, you, know, you know, the people that feel threatened are trying to combat it. Should, should we moralise about where the money's coming from and people getting paid a lot of money? Or is that unfair? Well, you could do that about everyone, couldn't you? Yeah. So... I prefer not to get into that. For me, at 50, it's a no-brainer. Nearly 50, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Somebody stood here and offered me 50 million quid to play golf when I'm at 48, and, you know, it's a no-brainer. What happens if they offer you 50 million and it's, you're not sure if you're ever going to play golf again, professionally? Well, because they may not ever get it off the That's something else you have to take into account. When all these things come along, it's a, it's a balancing act, isn't it? You've got to throw the balls in the air and juggle them for a while and see, uh, see what comes up. Okay. And, and the, what other you have to get all the facts together, first of all. I mean, I, I, I you know, haven't... I, I can see it from both sides, but I haven't really gone into depth in it, no. Yeah, even I was young back then. I think I was 18, watching it on TV. Um, remembered it being a good battle. Obviously, Bernard missed a short one on the last. And uh, like most Ryder Cups, it's, it was a close contest. Um, I think this is a fantastic venue. Um, for a golf tournament, especially the Ryder Cup, you know, it's thrills and spills kind of place. And, um, yeah, it was just another exciting edition of the Ryder Cup. I think that what kind of around that era built it up to be what it is today. So, yeah. All right. So that was Lee Westwood. I'm not sure he really gave an answer to the Super Golf League there. He kind of riddled him with, uh, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air and you got to, you know, okay. And I like the way the journalist came up with, like, to try to engage a player, he named a number. Well, what if they offered you, like, $50 million? It sounded like a conversation kids would have in the schoolyard. Well, what if it was $100 million? Um, well, I, you know, there's balls in the air. I'd have to take a look at which one I'm juggling and, you know, take it from there. All right. So Tony Finau is one of those that people look at and say, you know, with all the talent that he has, the natural gifts that he has, it doesn't feel like a question of if, it feels like a question of when, but if the question of when surrounds a major championship, then you have to have that conviction within. Tony talks to that and more. Yeah, I played it for the first time yesterday. I played 18. I wanted to touch them all um, early in the week. Uh, it seemed more like a U.S. Open golf course to me. I think if I'm if I'm being honest, I came, I, I tipped it out. I wanted to play it at its at its max length, um, but I thought there were some there were some long holes. 
there was enough wind yesterday to, um, to cause some problems. So I, I, I thought it was quite um, quite tough. You know, it actually reminds me a little bit of it's a different version, but of Harding Park when I first saw it. You know, I didn't play Harding Park before um, the PGA Championship last year, but I also thought that that was um, not not as much as the PGA Championship's MO, um, just as, as far as like toughness of golf course length, stuff like that. You kind of expect that more in the U.S. Open. But um, as the week went on at Harding Park, I think we um, the guys were able to learn the golf course, a lot of the same wind. So I think guys were still able to score. It'll be interesting to see how they mix up the tee boxes this week. Again, I played at its max length yesterday, so that probably was a big reason why it was playing really long. Um, felt like it played really tough, but um, and it was my first go around. So as I get more familiar with the course, um, maybe that'll change a little bit. But um, I, I really liked the golf course. I was impressed with it, and uh, it was it was nice to, to go around it for the first time yesterday. Yeah, it was a big round for me. Yeah. Um, just more so, I had a chance to win, come down the stretch there. Um, you know, Morikawa made an amazing eagle on 16, which kind of, I think, put the tournament away for a lot of us that were right or hovering right around 10 under, I think, is what kind of a lot of us were at. Um, so he was able to put the golf tournament away with that one swing. But barring that, any one of us could have won that tournament, and, and I was included in that. So I think that was big for me. That was um, one of the few chances I've had to, um, to maybe win a major championship or at least be in the thick of it with a few holes to go. So I think that was a big stepping stone for me. And um, it's always nice to play a good round of, uh, of golf on a major Sunday. I feel... I think I'm really comfortable, I think, in major atmospheres because I've put myself in contention in, in a lot of them. And I played in a Ryder Cup and I played in a President's Cup. So I, I don't know if it's less pressure more than um, maybe more comfortable than um, most of the field just being playing at a high level in these tournaments. Um, but I look forward to the major championships. You know, Tiger referred to them as the four, four weeks that mattered to him. A lot of the top players in the world feel the same. Um, and as my career has evolved uh, throughout the years, um, I'm starting to feel the same. The major championships are the threshold of our um, of, of pro golf, and I'm happy that I've showed up for a lot of them. I haven't been able to win one yet, but the more I put myself there, hopefully I, I knock the door down. Yeah, I think there's definitely a belief in major championships. I think there's only a certain amount of guys that actually believe they can win, like deep down. Um, I, I think I'm one of those guys. Um, I, I believe that I can win a major championship with my, with my track record, with my type of game that um, holds up well in, um, in, on big golf courses and under high-pressure situations. So I look, I look forward to the challenge this week. You know, this is the challenge we have at hand. And, um, but I, I think I have to, I'd have to agree with Brooks. There's only a certain amount of guys that believe they can get it done, and, um, and, and hopefully I'm that guy this week. Boom. Tony Finau believes... He'll be teeing off alongside of uh, Connors and Fitzpatrick, 1.03 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. All these times are Eastern. PXG's new Gen 4 golf clubs are the most advanced, best-performing clubs that we've ever made. Packed with new innovations, aluminum vapor technology, precision weighting technology, X-Core technology, and more. Gen 4 irons, drivers, fairways, and hybrids all deliver incredible ball speed, distance, control, sound, and feel. Visit pxg.com or call 844-PLAY-PXG to learn more. PXG, nobody makes golf clubs the way we do, period. We've got a ton coming up in the Fairways of Life show for you today, including a Hall of Famer still waiting in the the wings. Stand by for that. First to this, Kevin Kistner... On the difficulty of this golf course, we've heard a lot about it, but when you, you know, the golf course has had some new tees added. Otherwise, it's pretty much the setup that it was in 2012. And he also spoke about 
the challenge is for a player today, because there's so many big events, you've got the major championship, you've got the players championship, you've got the FedEx Cup playoffs, you've got the World Golf Championships, you've got events like uh, the Ryder Cup or President's Cup, you've got all of these things loading into a player's schedule to try to figure out how, when, and where they're going to put together everything that they need to put together. Well, he spoke about all that, and in this bizarro year that we're in, coming off of COVID, where you had majors at the end of last year and then into the full slate of all that is 2021. Kids talked about a lot. Today I got here uh, Sunday and played them all. The golf course is absolutely pristine as far as condition. I, I don't know if you could ever ask for it to be any any better. I don't even think they need to, to dramatically change it from here through Sunday. Um, it's just a, a great test overall. You, it's visually tough off the tee, but there's plenty of room. And then when you get wins up in the 15 to 20, it just makes the end of the wind holes that much harder. So we played the back nine today, and you turned on 14, and, and that stretch, those last five, it was just wearing you out, you know, with long clubs. But you catch the downwind holes, you can make some birdies if you can drive it in the fairway and have some, have some shorter shots in. So the greens are still somewhat receptive, even downwind, which, which makes it nice to be able to make some birdies. And uh, I think the PGA does a, a great job of setting it up to allow us to, uh, they're not trying to embarrass, or embarrass us or make it unfair. So I think they, they like to see us be tested, but allow us to make birdies with good shots. Well, I haven't played well in any of them since we went to the super schedule, so I'm hoping this that changes this week. Uh, you know, the entire world got turned upside down, obviously, and we've all had to adapt throughout the throughout the last year. So I think we're we're probably at a point now that we're turn, returning to somewhat normalcy, and I, I'm looking forward to um, to getting back to playing well. I, I think the um, the hardest thing is every event feels big now because we're running around the corner and you know we're going to have six majors the players world golf championships it feels like every two or three weeks we're at a venue where it's super stressful on the game because it's a, it's a difficult uh, golf course or a difficult event so I, I think that's one of the hardest is there's you don't get in a flow of playing and shooting 65 like they did last week and then turn around and playing a course like this it feels like uh, constantly getting beat up out here so with the with the big schedule Oh, yeah. 7.55 a.m. will be the tee time for kids tomorrow morning alongside of Martin Laird and Hudson Swafford. Now, Will Zalatoris has been getting a lot of attention. Sure, he's playing well. He's one of these young players. I heard someone say that, how did they phrase it? If he, if he walked behind a flagpole, you might lose sight of him. Well, Will Zalatoris is certainly getting a lot of attention. So when he spoke to the media, he was asked about his confidence level playing in any big event, certainly at a major championship. He was also asked about that, which Don was telling us about earlier, that Will Zalatoris hanging out with, playing some golf with Steve Stricker. Might he part, be part of the future of the American Ryder Cup effort? And also just about the fact that his star is on the rise. So here's Will Zalatoris commenting on all of those things and more. I think the reason why I've played so on the majors is it just feels the same as all the other tournaments. Um, You know, I, I, the golf courses are obviously way harder than regular tournaments. Um, and harder golf courses tend to favor me since I'm a better, my ball striking is the best part of my game. So, you know, even though I'm hitting three and four irons into basically five or the last five or six holes, you know, that favors me because I hit it far and, I mean, these guys are hitting more club than me. So um, I think, if anything, it's, you know, same old, same old. Uh, keep on doing what we're doing. I, you know, I kind of had a little bit of a 
a little bit of a kind of a rough couple weeks, um, specifically on and around the greens, but I think it really turned the corner this week with Josh, and so it's exciting. I mean, it's a brutal golf course. you got to hit it good. There's no faking it around this place. I mean, you've, every aspect of your game has to be, has to be on. I met uh, Captain Steve Stricker yesterday, played nine holes with him, and um, I was actually the first time I had gotten to spend some time with them. It's definitely on, definitely on the radar, but... You know, nine months ago, I wasn't even thinking I was going to be on the PGA Tour, let alone playing in a U.S. Open and leading me to get to this point. So um, I think that's part of the reason why I'm not looking too far ahead. And it's just because, you know, 10 months ago, I thought I was going to have to spend two years on the Corn Ferry Tour. Ten months ago, I thought I was going to maybe sneak in, you know, maybe get my get special temporary status and then finish second in a major a few months ago. So it's just it's been a wild run and so that's part of the it's been a great lesson to realize that I'm not you know don't get too far ahead of myself all right so Will Zalatoris will be playing alongside of Jordan Spieth and Webb Simpson he'll be teeing off at 1:58 p.m tomorrow afternoon Xander Shoffley is one who rightfully so gets a lot of attention when it comes to big events certainly in major championships where he has knocked on the door so he spoke to the press about kind of the lessons that he has learned from the failures and preparing for success at major championships and in particular preparing for success this week with the wins that will be coming off consistently off the sea uh, and he was talking about how this strategy is his strategy and goes into detail with the media here is Zenda. i hope so uh, that's the plan um all the failed attempts are hopefully going to lead to success at some point and um, i think i can uh, attribute all the you know recent good play in, in the pga championships or the better play i should say just experience um i think as the courses get harder uh, if you look at sort of i don't even remember my first pga was uh, a quail hollow uh, scoring wise was one of the tougher ones uh, my second was at Belle Reve. That was an easier score. And then it kind of ramped up with, you know, Beth Page and yeah. uh, Harding Park and now here. So, you <laughs> know, I don't see a really low score winning this week um, with the wind and difficulty of the course, which usually feeds into sort of, you know, my my ballpark. It's really tough. And if you and your caddy can focus for six hours each day, uh, it's a major championship. If you can focus for long enough and more than everyone else, you have a better chance of beating them. So... Um, obviously, you got to hit the right shots and everything, but you also have to think your way around the property when it's this windy. The first takeaway is that I am, you know, I, I can win. I think I've done it before, and I've put myself in a lot of situations in big tournaments to do it, so I, I know that I can do it. I just haven't done it yet. And the second thing is the mistakes I've made are, are all very similar. Um, I've sort of been in contention when I've been playing really, really well, and I've sort of been around the lead as well when I haven't been playing as well and I think both times I I, I I sort of lost track of where I was in the tournament in terms of mentally and I wasn't present and I think um, that's a lot of, of what champions talk about how they're able to stay present and go shot to shot and sort of stick to what they know best and for me I haven't won a whole lot in my life or in my career uh, when it comes to golf so uh, it's such a new thing for me and I'm still getting used to sort of trying to win and uh, sometimes I get ahead of myself and sort of look too far uh, in advance. It really plays into shot shaping and your ability to flight and control your windows more than anything else. So I think the more comfortable you are with fighting golf shots or controlling your flight, the, the better you'll play in tournaments like this. You try and find a range that's straight into the wind. Um, your your miss is amplified into the wind and that's that's kind of just it. So. 
if you thin it or tow it or heal it or hook it or slice it into the wind, it's going to look like the worst shot anyone's ever seen out here, <laughs> even for us. And so you can't really prepare for it, honestly. You know, I've been working in San Diego and trying to fly at the golf ball, hitting certain windows. But as soon as you come out here, you know, you start tensing up a little. You start changing how you attack the golf ball, and the rest is history. So you really try and control your window as much as possible. And history is exactly what Xander will be chasing along with everybody else at the 103rd PGA Championship. Coming up now in less than 24 hours. He was also talking about a champion's mindset. And I can guarantee you that's something that we're about to get into because we are just minutes away from being joined by a World Golf Hall of Fame member who will share with us stories about his career and his multiple wins in major championships, including the PGA Championship. But before we get to that, we'll talk and hear from another multiple-time major champion in the form of Padraig Harrington. Anytime you hear from him, it's classic. He went down this road with the media yesterday talking about, eh, where the benefits of having success or having experience and versus just having just naivete, just, just brazen youth when you approach something. And he was basically saying that sometimes gaining experience isn't all that great. Anytime Padraig Harrington talks, it is great, though. He talked about success at Kiowa. He talked about the Ryder Cup. He talked about that it's too early for players really to be focusing on it. I have a feeling they're still thinking about it, though. Here is the captain of the European Ryder Cup team. Yeah, obviously it's nice to be a winner on this golf course, the World Cup in 97. It's, uh, I said this to... Uh, Rasmus Hagard the other day that I'd won in 97 and he hadn't been born for another four or five years or something so yeah it's uh, I'd love to play in golf courses like this all the time it is a, it's a beauty of a golf course it's, it's a really nice test it gives a lot of options it's a, it's a big golf course it's got a lot of risk reward but it gives you some, some leeway in terms of you've got the skills around the greens you can get it up and down so just a really, really good test. Obviously, playing it today, I played it Sunday in a, in, a, in a crosswind, and you could work the ball, and the golf course didn't play long at all. It was, it was a really, it was a nice, enjoyable to test, test. Today, with the wind the way it was, it was, it was a beast today. Uh, so, yeah, look, I'm sure you guys will set the golf course up appropriate, but I, I really do enjoy playing it. I, I think... It's a much better test to go out in a golf course where, you know, if you shape the shot ball well, you can use the wind, you can work it on the wind. And, and you know, around the greens, it's interesting. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of excitement around the greens. You, you can really hit a good chip shot. You can get a lot of spin off, this tur- off the past Palom turf. Uh, so you can play shots that look impossible. And you can also mess up shots that look easy. So it's, it's, it's kind of, for me, it would be the ideal sort of test. Yeah, I, I do see things are starting to change for me. Uh, you know, clearly with the delay, I think most of the administration work is done. Uh, so, you you know, my intention coming into this year was, you know, very much focused on, you know, the team and, and, and I suppose watching the team and getting an idea for the team. My team seems to be reasonably settled in the in the top nine positions, and and it, and it kind of looks like most guys are playing playing to impress me. Uh, I see the my own. I've I've changed a little bit, especially kind of the Masters time was a watershed. I, I played golf up to that, and and it was awkward to kind of do things. But since then, uh, I see myself spending more time with the players at different stages and trying to trying to take a little bit more time out of my day to be, 
uh, you know, to be like I played nine hole practice round on Sunday with Tommy and things like that. Uh, you know, so just just trying to be around the guys a bit more and 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 maybe stepping out from what I'm doing. You know, normally at a tournament I'm a busy person, keep my head down, do my work. Uh, but I'm trying to make that effort to step out from that and 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 just spend a bit more time. So I'm I'm definitely not as focused on my own golf as, as I would have been pre-masters. I'm 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 more focused, if anything, on the Ryder Cup now. I've tried to say and get it across to everybody. Their goal at the moment is to play well in the next three majors and the Olympics. You know, the Ryder Cup is the fifth tournament in that in that in their schedule. So if they could peak. You know, if I was sitting there looking at their training or golfing schedule, they should peak for the next this major, the next two majors, the Olympics, and then hopefully hold something back to peak at the end of September. Uh, so, you know, this is not the week for getting in guys' heads. This is not the week for, uh, you know, for having dinners and things like that. Uh, this is this is a tournament week, serious business for these guys and. Anybody who's in contention to, to make the Ryder Cup team, I hope is it, it has the ability to come and win here. So uh, they should be really focused on that and uh, not worrying about a tournament five months out. Myself and my vice captains will do, that, do enough of that for them. Padraig Harrington will be teeing off alongside of Phil Mickelson and Jason Day. They will tee off at 1.14 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. Tour Edge, pound for pound, the leader in the industry in performance and innovation, recently announced their all-new Exotic 721 series of metal woods and irons. These ultra-premium sticks have already made it into play with several PGA Tour champions players winning with them. They feature all-new design concepts and groundbreaking technology from the Tour Edge R&D team that takes the Exotic 721 series to an entirely new level of performance. The performance and design goals of the Exotic 721 series were to provide every golfer more ball speed on off-center hits, a higher launch uh, that is combined with a lower spin properties and perfected sound and feel. Innovation breakthroughs like the new Ridgeback support system in the Meadowoods and Vibracore performance TPU in the irons. Plus, Diamond Face 2.0 technology in the entire series provide the ultimate in power and feel. To see the new Exotic 721 and to find a local dealer, visit touredge.com today when the fairways of life show continues on this wednesday of pga championship week yeah when we come back we're going to be joined by a world golf hall of fame member a multiple time winner of major championships including the pga championship more after this nestled amongst the hills of the hoosier national forest resides a classic american destination the french lick resort experience the ultimate in golf at the pete dye course at french lick voted number one course in indiana on golf week's best you can play for 10 years in a row the donald ross course at french lick has been named indiana's number two course in golf week's best you can play rankings every year since 2011 come experience old world opulence amid modern comfort served with midwestern charm visit french lick TheGolfTravelGroup.com is a luxury golf tour operator that specializes in custom travel itineraries to Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, Iceland, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and more. Guaranteed advanced tee times, incredible accommodations, airport meet and greet services, private guided tours, and private drivers, all in luxury vehicles. And they have a staff that's been doing it forever. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. 
I'm Tiger Woods, and I chose Bridgestone. I wanted to be with a company that I knew, and then on top of that, that made superior products. So I did. I came back and I started playing with the Bridgestone Tour BXS, and it's allowed me to maintain the spin and the feel I like around the greens, especially my short irons, but also have that penetrating flight through the wind. The aerodynamics have been phenomenal. I know the quality that Bridgestone has, R&D that's available to them, and what they were able to create that helped me win golf tournaments. Even though we're in Texas, we don't believe that bigger is always better. At Ben Hogan Golf, we believe in something called micromanufacturing, a concept Mr. Hogan taught us long ago. It's a belief that handcrafting golf clubs one at a time to your exacting specifications is the reason we make some of the best quality and best performing equipment in the world. And we don't believe in big prices. That's why we only sell directly to you at BenHoganGolf.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you in pain on the golf course? You know, pain management is a crisis in America. It affects over 100 million people and 35% of golfers. But now we can do something about it. BioFit 360 is a new company here to help us manage and alleviate that pain naturally. They've developed a formula that safely extracts CBD from the hemp plant and utilizes all of its healing properties to help us. They have a relief cream, they have gummies, they have sleep aids, and much more. It will change the way you feel on the golf course and in life. All you need to do is head to BioFit360.com. Feel better, do better, be better. Hi, I'm Brian Hammonds. You country club members can now represent your club and compete in a Ryder Cup-style event. The inaugural Country Club National Championship presented by Fuzzy's Ultra Premium Vodka. It's October 12th through the 17th at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The field is limited, so don't delay. For more information, go to ccncgolf.com. That's ccncgolf.com. I hope to see you and your team in Orlando. Streamsong is so special with three top 100 U.S. courses designed by four legendary architects. Tom Doak's Blue Course, Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw's Red Course, and Gil Hansen's Black Course. Secluded by thousands of acres, the greatest golf stories are lived, not told. Streamsongresort.com Welcome back to the Fairways of Life show on this Wednesday of the PGA Championship Week. It was awesome hearing from so many players in the last segment. We're not done yet. Still coming up in the program, you're going to hear from Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, amongst those that are waiting in the wings. And before we wrap up in today's program, too, we want to make sure that you know where you can get your PGA Championship coverage because the PGA Championship coverage is stout and it is available on multiple platforms. We'll go through all that with you coming up in just a second. But first, an absolute legend. Athletes, as you know, often speak about what it means to represent their country and how it is the highlight of their careers. Well, there are only three men ever from Australia in that golf-crazed country to have collected two or more major championships. Peter Thompson, Greg Norman, and our next guest. David Graham, who won the 1979 PGA Championship and the 1981 U.S. Open. You might remember that 1981 U.S. Open is still tied for the highest ratings ever for a U.S. Open. It's tied alongside of Tiger Woods out at Torrey. 
but he did much more than that, too. He collected wins all over the globe during his career, which began in 1962. It saw him amass eight PGA Tour wins, three European Tour wins, nine PGA Tour Australasia wins, five PGA Tour champions wins, and 37 wins overall as a professional. He won events on six continents, something only achieved by a handful of other golfers ever. They are Gary Player, Hale Irwin, Bernhard Langer, and Justin Rose. Pretty elite company. From the 12-year span between 1972 and 1983, the peak of his prowess, David played in 263 events. He won eight times. He finished in the top 10 an astonishing 70 times. That's a 27% clip, incidentally. One in every four events, he was in contention for 12 straight years, and that was during a time, what I like to say, when giants roamed. Arnold Palmer was still playing golf and and playing well. Uh, Even the likes of Seve and Watson and Floyd and Crenshaw and Trevino and Nicholas and more and more. David Graham was runner-up 10 times on tour, uh, third another four times. He was a breath away from 20 wins. There's no doubt at that time you had the Battle of Hall of Famers left and right to get your piece, and David did just that and more, which is why he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2015, and rightfully so is an Australian golf and world golf icon. Absolute delight to be joined once again on the program by David Graham. How are you, sir? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Absolute delight to have your company, as I mentioned. You know, I was trying to remember when you were on with us last, I believe it was seven or eight years ago, and and David, correct me if I'm wrong, I remember you telling me that Arnold Palmer would come out and play golf with you. And I, I, I thought this was you that told me this story. And I remember asking you why uh, Mr. Palmer would come out and play. And you told me that he said, because you do not judge. Was that your story? Am I, is my recollection correct? Yes. No, that's true. Uh, we played quite a lot out in Palm Springs in his yeah. latter years. And we would, uh, I asked him one day how come he was playing so much with me particularly. And he said, well, he said, you, you're not judgmental, was his words. And um, I have to reflect on that a little bit. But, you know, he played, it's it's like Jack Nicholas and it's like Gary Player and Trevino. Everybody, you know, they're they're in their 80s and, uh, and people still, you know, want them to play like they used to play. And obviously they don't play that way and none of us do. But um, you, you you know how they were and you know how great they were. And, and I just played along and we just had a good time and we were hitting it 200 yards off the tee. And he just told me, he said, I like to play with you because, uh, you know, you remember what I used to play, how I used to play. And you appreciate the fact that I still love the game, but don't play very well anymore. So yeah, it was just, it was just one word really. He said, I like to play with you because you're not judgmental. That's that's awesome. That's, and what a yeah. cool, cool memory to have of, of an yeah. absolute, another absolute legend. Uh, in yeah. 1962, when you turned professional, I guess the, the question I would start with there, David, is why were you drawn to golf in the first place? And what was mm. the actual trigger point that you said, now it's time, I'm going to I'm going to pry my trade on the professional ranks? <laughs> well, I think I was very blessed. Um, I was not a good student. I was in a dysfunctional family and I happened to ride my bike to a little public golf course in Melbourne 
and I met the head professional there. He took me under his wings. He gave me a job on the weekends and um, really kind of got me involved in the in golf. Uh, and he then recommended me for a position at a really nice golf club in Melbourne called Riversdale Golf Club. And the, the head professional there was a, a gentleman by the name of George Naismith. And um, he kind of knew I was uh, you know, having struggles and he, he gave me a job. And that's really how I got into golf. Uh, I started left-handed, ironically. Wow. Uh, I don't... I don't know why or how I did that. Mostly the first club I picked up was a left-handed club, which happens a lot of times. But after uh, two years of being an apprentice with Mr. Naismith, uh, he suggested that I change to right-handed. He was an advocate of, of having the, the stronger of the two hands on the bottom part of the grip because he, in those days you wanted to learn to turn the ball right to left and he wanted the strong hand on the bottom so that it could control the toe of the club more. So I was very fortunate that those two people early in my life uh, stepped into my life. It's, it's an interesting story because yesterday Bruce Crampton was on with us. Uh, earlier in the week, I was talking with a prominent Australian golf journalist about success for Australian golfers. Now, especially right. back in the day when, when you decided that you were going to do this, you had to know that you were going to have to leave. You were going to have to travel internationally to make this happen. You had to know the world that maybe you didn't, the world that you were stepping into. I'm curious about what your mindset was when you felt like you were ready. Well, I, I didn't really realize that I would eventually step into that. I needed some indicators as to, to how I would do that and, and whether I was good enough to do it. Because even in the early days of the Asian tour, there were some very good players that played on that, on that circuit. So I, I won about four uh, open tournaments uh, in, in Australia. Uh, and that really was the indicator that I could, I could play at that level at that time. And um, Precision Golf Forgings had a program uh, amongst the people that represented that company uh, that whoever kind of established the most points on the home ground, uh, they would buy them a, a ticket on Qantas and they would f basically finance most of you because the ticket was the most expensive. And in those days, Qantas had satellite offices all through Asia and they had a lot of Australian employees, so we would be able to stay at people's homes, which was uh, very cost-effective. And I finished, I think, runner-up in a, after a playoff in the Singapore Open. So that was really, I had two indicators. I had one that I had won some tournaments on home ground, and then I obviously um, realized that I could play pretty well. So I played two years on the Asian tour. And um, in between that, you know, players like Nicholas and Player and Arnold and Trevino would, would always come to Australia. They would play in the Australian Open. They'd play in the Australian Masters or the Australian PGA. And I kind of studied them and got to know them. And um, they all said that, you know, if you can play at all 
uh, for as normal a life as you could get as a, as a professional, uh, limiting the travel and being able to travel by car from tournament to tournament. And in those days, well, it still is, the best players play in America. And they said that, you know, you should come and try and get your tour card. So I had a lot of good input early into my career. Yeah, it's, and it's a testament, too, to the Australian Open, yeah. that the, in particular, not only in the fact that you were a champion yeah. of the same, but also in the, in the names of the likes that would travel back in the day down there to play. Sure. It was looked upon as... Well, as I, think, I think Gary Player won seven, uh, and I think Jack Nicklaus won six, mm -hmm. and I think Arnold won one. So if you're looking at late 60s and early 70s, um, we were fortunate that those great names played international golf because Jack would go to Japan and Arnold would go to Japan and uh, Gary certainly went there and then between the Open Championship in England and a couple of tournaments in Europe you know they were in those days really global golfers even under the circumstances of, of limited air travel I mean to get to Australia and you know Jack Nicholas won the ta uh, Australian Open in Hobart Tasmania so you can only guess what it took for him to get from Palm Beach, Florida to Hobart, Tasmania. My goodness, that's a two-day jaunt. Yeah, so. and like I said, it's a, it was a testament to uh, the way that the best players in the world viewed the status of the Australian Open. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. a testament uh, to you as well <laughs> that you got to know these guys and, and were able to play golf with them. And at, at that point, I want to touch on for a second, David Graham, in that... Mm. You're competing against players that obviously you knew. You, you, I, I'm not talking about knew them personally or formally. I'm talking about knew who they were. And now you're competing in fields against them and anybody else that you're coming up against that you, you noted that there were some very good players in, in your own circles. Was it, you alluded to the fact that you had a, a difficult childhood, a challenging childhood. Was that part of your mental fortitude? Did that help give you the, the, the ability to compete at these times of, of crushing pressure? Oh, I, I don't. I think so. I think it made me. Um, I think when I got introduced to golf, I think I realized that uh, it was my avenue to uh, break the cycle. Put it that way. Um, and I thought also that it was going to be a good lifestyle, whether I became a player or a teacher or a golf professional. Um, it was an opportunity for me to succeed in life. Um, without necessarily uh, finishing school or going to college. And in those days, for me to do that was just virtually impossible. It's an absolutely fascinating path. When you decided then, it's time to get on the boat, it's time to get on the plane, it's, it's time to leave the shores of your homeland. Right, right. What was the first port of call? How did you play that out? Well, my first overseas trip was uh, Alcan Golfer of the Year, which was played in 1969 in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and Billy Casper beat Lee Trevino. There were only 30 plays. I think they only had maybe three or four years of the Alcan Golfer of the Year. And one of them was in 69 in Portland. I played in that. And I actually, I finished uh, second last. Uh, the only player that I beat was Cal Nagel. And the only reason I beat Cal Nagel was he had 15 clubs in his bag and, and got penalized like 14 strokes. And um, 
had to sign for an 86 and they were the only guy I beat. But then I, um, I won tournaments in Australia in the 70s. I won a few of the state open tournaments. And then I got invited, um, I think I was about sixth in line to get paired for the World Cup tournament. Uh, uh-huh. In those days, there was no money in it. It was truly for your con- love of country. And the American-based players, and Peter Thompson had already won it several times and didn't want to go. He lived in Melbourne, and the tournament was in Buenos Aires. He didn't want to make that trip, and I don't blame him. And Cal Nagel had played with Peter and won it before, and he didn't want to make the trip. And Bruce Crampton was busy playing on the U.S. tour, and he obviously didn't make the trip. And I was kind of next in line, and... And Bruce Devlin, who had already been selected, uh, basically said, well, send the kid down and we'll play together. And hmm. as it turned out, uh, we finished up winning. I think we won the tournament by 19 strokes, which I think was surprised everybody, including myself. That's brilliant. What was it like? Yeah. It traveling back in those days with, with clubs and all the bags. I mean, you're laughing about it now, but I imagine the stories are insane. Uh, they, they are insane. I, I always said, you know, what happened at the, the World Cup was a good experience for me. Um, I went down there, coach, and came back first class. <laughs> yeah. You know, that kind of stuff, that's, that's a microcosm winning. of a career too, yeah. isn't it? That's amazing what winning does for one's life. Yeah, it is. Amazing. So that, yeah, that was my lesson. And then I, I played in Asia, and I just, I don't know. I played a couple of tournaments, and it wasn't comfortable for uh, ladies to travel. We didn't speak the language in those days, although I spoke a little bit. Um, the travel was from country to country to country. Uh, it was great. We were young, we were newly married, and it was great. But it wasn't something that we wanted uh as as a, a lifetime deal the problem too was that it was only played in like january february march and then you had to come and play the european tournaments and then you'd have to go play the south american tournament so it was global and it was like three months here three months there and then three months back home not not a lot of tournaments and the u.s tour offered uh stability it offered uh, a more lo- normal life for people, and that's what we wanted. We didn't have children in those days, so we just said, "Hey, we're young, we're adventurous." Uh, you know, um, you know, the, the the top players like Nicholas said, "You know, come and play in America, man. That's where you got to come and play." Gary Player said, "You got to go to America." Trevino said, "You know, come over there. What what can we do for you? How can we help you?" you know, wow, Devlin had. Devlin had already um, established uh, a residence in the United States, and he was very successful uh, as a player and very respected as a person. And um, he was incredibly helpful. So we had a a tremendous amount of good advice, and we had a tremendous amount of of, uh, help from a lot of people. Did you at that time in those formative years as, as a tour player, did you have kind of a lifetime plan? Did you see yourself one day, uh, you know, frankly, no. did you see yourself aspiring to the heights that you are? You're a hall of famer. No, well, no, I never did that. I think, um, 
in the early, I, I came and got my tour card in 71. I won the Cleveland Open in 72, which was good because that got me into an exempt category. Um, uh, I had played okay. I played, you know, pretty good, 73, 4 and 5. And then 76, I really had a good year. I think I won six or seven tournaments that year. And um, we had decided that we were going to live in the United States. We were going to buy a house in the United States. Um, my parents had basically passed. My wife's mother was still alive, and one of her brothers was still alive. Who's, they both sadly have passed. So we just decided that, you know, if we were going to play golf and we were going to make a living and put our kids in school, we decided that this is where we wanted to do it. Wow. It's interesting, too, uh, David, that you, you've mentioned already names of, and we've talked about Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Billy Casper, Lee Trevino, yeah. Jack Nicholas, Bruce <clears throat> Devlin, the list goes on and on. And, and those, that, that the first start of that list are all uh, members that are, are also in the World Golf Hall of Fame with you, major champions. When you played... When you, when you were alive in time and place and at the height of your prowess was a time that I like to say when giants roamed. Uh, at, the, at the top of any field, week in and week out, you've, you've got all of these Hall of Famers with, with deep, 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 stout resumes, and you right. were able to play, you were able to, to succeed, obviously. I guess the, the broad question is, what was it like to be a competitor during those times? It was terrific. Are you kidding? It was wonderful. I mean, just to to be a part of that generation and to, to uh, you know, get paired with Jack and, and, and play the first two rounds at Augusta with him or the Saturday round and listen to the people and uh, to play with Arnold and see how much he was loved. Uh, you know, it was interesting. An interesting thing, too, is that, you know, Gary Player uh, went through a period of his life during apartheid where he was booed, hissed. I mean, life-threatened lives. He's, they said he would get shot. I mean, all kinds of scenarios that he he just kept on going. He played in the world match play in England under uh, unfortunate circumstances. He played in the Australian Open when there were death threats on him. I mean, amazing that period of time where he was such an icon in the game but the apartheid just dragged him down and he got up and teed it up he just kept on going and he said you know if they're going to shoot me they're going to shoot me and thank god they never did but if you look at if you analyze which i don't do much anymore but if you do analyze let's call it the nicholas era mm -hmm. so you know jack won 18 majors and he won, I don't know how many, finished second and third another 20 or 30 times, whatever the number is. But then you look at, you know, Gary Player, I think, won 11 majors. You know, Billy Casper, you know, Tom Watson won eight majors. Uh, Ray Floyd won five. I think Nick Faldo won six. During the peak of Nicholas's career, there were multiple, multiple other major tournament winners. Mm -hmm. And you don't see that today because the depth of the field is so much stronger that the tour really isn't dominated by five or six players all the time. You 
you have different winners. You know, here here comes a Japanese player that wins the Masters. Here comes a Korean player that just won the, the Byron Nelson. So to amass multiple majors in this era of, of golf is very, very difficult. It's just, you know, you look at Tiger Woods's era, which is incredible. Next to Nicholas's, it's the best in golf history. But it's unbelievably difficult now for a player to win one major, more difficult to win two, and super difficult to win five or six. What's amazing about that, the way you described it too, David, is that when you think about the, the players that you spoke about, all of them, Palmer, Nicholas, Player, Trevino, Floyd, all of them, yourself, everybody had their their golf swing was their fingerprint. And it, it spoke about where you guys came from. There was no there was no path of gold laid out before you. You guys all clawed it out and it, it just the whole scene gives one the perception of, of a bar fight in terms of, of how hard you guys worked. How much was that an element, as you called it, of your generation in that there, there was just a lot of tough guys because you had to beat it to win? Well, look at Hale Irwin. I mean, how, how good a competitor was he? I mean, he won three U.S. Opens, but, man, to beat him, he was tough. I mean, he was a beautiful driver of the ball, great iron player, great putter. I mean, he was under the gun. I mean, Ray Floyd was tough under the gun. There were a lot of people. I, I, I think that, um, uh, I think a, a player like Nicholas, uh, I always thought Nicholas played at the highest level, so we could measure our game against his, and find out what we needed to try and do to beat him. I think you look at Gary Player and you saw commitment, dedication, desire. Uh, I remember uh, one year in Melbourne, uh, it was a, the Wills Masters tournament at Victoria Golf Club and it was a Wednesday afternoon and it was pouring with rain and we we're all up in the, in the clubhouse having tea and biscuits and watching it pour and the putting green got underwater and there was a you could see the practice fairway and there was a guy down there in a black rain suit and uh, somebody just casually walked by and made a comment, who's that idiot hitting balls in the rain? And somebody rightfully so, well, that idiot happens to be Gary Player. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lesson there. You look and you think, now here's, here's a guy that's favorite to win. He's already won X majors. He's pouring with rain. He could be back at his hotel, uh, you know, having a hamburger and watching television. And he's out there in the pouring rain hitting golf balls. Well, none of the up-and-coming wannabe players were doing that. And I thought, wow, if it's good enough for Gary Play to do it, it's good enough for me. So I trottled out into the pouring rain, put my rain jacket on and went down there and basically stood right beside him and started to practice and you know, and then one thing would lead to another and you'd start talking and then you'd talk about the swing and you'd talk about your family and stuff like that. So uh, even just that little thing was, was uh, a point to take. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'm going to hop ahead to 1979, given that this is the PGA Championship week and we're sitting on the yes. eve of the start of the 103rd edition. 
you are a PGA champion. Uh, in 1979 yeah. at Oakland Hills on the South Course uh, is where you etched your victory. Interestingly enough, as we're talking about the legends, that was the year that Sam Snead, at 67 years old, still made the cut in the PGA I know. Championship. Uh, but amazing. It is amazing. And, and again, your crossroads in your lives with all of these legends, even this leaderboard, first round, Tom Watson shoots a 66 to stand at four under, and you open with a 69 at one under par. In the right. second round, Ben Crenshaw takes the lead at four under par, but you're right there. You backed up the 69 with, it, with an even better score, 68. You're only one shot behind. And then in the third round, Rex Caldwell at 67, 70, and 66 gets to seven under par. You were four shots back heading into that final round. I guess I w- if, if you take it wherever you please, sir, and, and tell us about your reminiscing of the 1979 PGA Championship, but you had a hill to climb going into that final round. I, I did, and I, I did something that nobody thought would happen in that tournament, actually, and I stumbled on the last hole. I was waiting for you to mention that, but fortunately you didn't. <laughs> and um, I was nine under par on the 18th tee on Oakland Hills, which, you know, nobody ever thought you could shoot scores like that on that golf course. And I, I from tee to green, hit the ball well, and I made about every putt that I looked at. So I made up ground quickly. And, and um, I think uh, Dan Jenkins wrote an article about Rex Colwell. He said, there's not a enough mustard in this country to cover that hot dog and and you know in sport in sports you never in in sports you never claim big victory before it's over and i think he he told the press on saturday night that this tournament's over you might as well give me the trophy now and of course you can hear all the sighs in the locker room of going oh you shouldn't say things like that you know <laughs> there's still another round to go but I got very fortunate. Uh, I won the playoff. Uh, I made two monstrous putts on the the first and second hole. I beat Ben Crenshaw, who was the up-and-coming young superstar. And to his credit, he went on to win two Masters tournaments. Uh, And we've been good friends, which is unusual when uh, you you take defeat like that. You tend to remember that for a long time, but Ben didn't. Um, and that was life-changing for me because that was a 10-year exemption. And that allowed me to even uh, sink deeper roots into family and, and life and location. Uh, once you get that 10-year exemption and you know you can play pretty much when you want to and where you want to and you're in the majors automatically. It's so much easier to plan your playing schedule and your family schedule when you have a a 10-year exemption. Seeing that it gave you a strategic stability, certainly, at the very least, uh, to plan, as you noted, and and to know where you could devote your time and energies. I'm curious how much of an emotional boost it it gives one to break through at that level and to now be amongst the elusive grouping of major champions. Was it a validation for you, David, or, or, or how, how did it strike you? Well, it was, it was, it's validation. I think for anybody that works hard to, um, to set goals in life, um, it was validation for me because very few people early in my career, said that I would ever be any good. Um, 
And that's a hard hump to get over when you're not put down as much as you're not, you're not told that you, you don't get the support. And I had support, but I also had a lot of people. There was a lot of jealousy in um, Australian golf in the early days. You know, Thompson carried the torch for all Australians, but there were, you know, dozens and dozens of young players that wanted to be successful. And only, you know, one or two or three of them became successful and the rest didn't as players. They became successful in other areas of their life, but not in playing. So there was a, a lot of jealousy that, that a player like myself could become well-known and come back to Australia and get appearance fees and, and, and uh, enjoy uh, the success of playing in America and stuff. There were people that were very resentful of that. So you had, you had hurdles to break. There's no question about that. Um, but I didn't plan uh, all of that. It, it just materialized. I, I was never presumptuous enough to think that I was going to win to the extent that I did win. Um, just... I just kept plodding along like everybody. And now sit enshrined eternally in the yeah. World Golf Hall of Fame. You also yeah. won a U.S. Open in 1981. I'm going to, if, if I may be so bold, David, table that for next sure. month and ask for you to come back on with us uh, so that we sure. can savor the conversation that we've, we've had here today and talking about this PGA Championship on the eve of the start of the 103rd. Uh, it's been an honor, sir. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much for your company as ever. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, folks, I just want to remind everybody as we head into break here, and don't forget, you still have Rory, you still have DJ, you still have Justin Thomas coming up, who we're going to hear from on today's program. A PGA Tour Superstore is the number one golf retailer in America, and they are for a reason. And that reason is that when you decide whatever it is that you want for your game, a new driver, a new set of irons, a new golf bag, a putter, shoes, clothing, you're going to be getting it from real professionals, not just someone in a big box sporting goods store that wants to sell you a product. These are people that want to ensure that what you get is best for you. They are the reason why they're the number one golf retailer in America. PGATourSuperstore.com is where you can get all the details today and start to look into what you need and want for your game. If I told you legends like Robert Trent Jones Sr., Arthur Hills, and Donald Ross have designed and inspired more than 10 breathtaking courses and they're all in one place, would you believe me? Where is this special place? How far do I have to travel for this golfing nirvana? The answer could both surprise and delight you. It's right around the corner in the heartland of the country. It's Boyne Golf in Northern Michigan. It's a destination so special, so unique, that you'll think you're playing golf at a work of art along the cliffs of the Monterey Peninsula or the raw, sweeping landscapes of Scotland. From elite instruction with the Boyne Golf Academy, tournaments, and so much more, Boyne Golf truly offers an unrivaled golf vacation experience. Log on to BoyneGolf.com and see why they're at the heart of America's summer golf capital. Come to where history meets luxury at the family-friendly French Lick Springs Hotel, where there's something for everyone. 
from Kids Fest to shopping, bowling, golf, and other outdoor activities. Or at the West Baden Springs Hotel, you can wrap yourself in old world elegance, visit our luxurious spa, indulge in an afternoon tea, a historic tour, and multiple sophisticated dining options. Then, finish your day with a cozy carriage ride before turning in for sweet dreams. Only this isn't a dream. Visit FrenchLick.com to plan your vacation today. What's your bucket list destination? Where have you always wanted to go? What's the number one thing that holds people back from doing that? It's fear of logistics. I don't know where to stay. I don't know how to get tea times. I don't know where to go. I don't know who should take me there. Well, I'll tell you who knows the answer to all those questions. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. That's why the Fairways of Life show has aligned ourselves with these experts. And is there some place you want to go, like the Open or a President's Cup or a Ryder Cup? They can take care of that as well. What is your golf bucket list? Where do you want to go? Do it with TheGolfTravelGroup.com. It screams. It tracks. It's soft. It reacts. It is the all-new Tour B with a game-changing reactive cover designed to spring faster off your driver and stick longer to your wedges. Try the new Tour B. The Tour Ball. Reinvented. Let's face it, there's no better feeling than getting new golf gear. And where you get your golf gear matters. PJ Tour Superstore is America's number one golf retailer. Whatever you're looking for, they have it. And you can get custom fit. You can shop online or safely in their stores. At the PJ Tour Superstore, you'll always find golf's biggest brands and all the latest equipment right at your fingertips. If you need it or want it, they've got it. Log on to PGATourSuperstore.com to upgrade your game today. Welcome back to the Fairways of Life show on this Wednesday as we sit on the eve of the 103rd PGA Championship. I was just telling you that uh, JT and Rory, you're going to be hearing from I said DJ too, but he actually, his press conference got moved to today. Let's take a look at the press conference schedule today. It opens up in the morning with Colin Morikawa, the first to address the media. As you guys well know, he is the defending champion of this PGA Championship, having won it uh, last year, later last year than uh, traditionally uh, the May date that they've now moved to. And the weather looks like it's going to be perfect. And I'm going to get to that with Dom in just a second. Uh, Steve Stricker will be next up at 10 a.m. The United States Ryder Cup captain Bryson at 10.30. Uh, Garrett Higo, the South African at 11 a.m., who's been playing extremely well on the European tour. Uh, Corey Connors at 11.30 a.m. There you can see DJ was slotted in at 12.30 p.m. today. Dave Stockton at 2.30 this afternoon. Dom, what are you hearing about the weather? Is it still looking as good and as promising as it was yesterday? Uh, yes, it is. And yes, it's super promising. Uh, you can see if you're watching on the TV side, Andrew's put up a full screen graphic there of the weather. The okay. weather is going to be perfect. Every day it's mostly sunny. Every day there's a 0% chance of rain. They have added a slight 10% chance of possible rain on Sunday afternoon but really no rain in the forecast. And every day it's going to be basically in the mid-70s, uh, up in the low 80s. The only thing is the wind is, you know, you're near the, you're near the water there. You're going to have wind issues. And it looks like about anywhere, anywhere from 10 to 20 miles per hour every day. There could be some gusts a little bit more than that. Uh, but uh, it's basically perfect weather, Matt. No yeah, complaints. it looks absolutely very excited about the PGA championship this week. Yeah, rightfully so. And it does look like perfect weather uh, for this time of year in May. If they tried to do this in August, it would have been even hotter 
then it looks like the temperature is going to be perfect. Right in the low 80s will be the high of all of it. Now, for Justin Thomas, uh, JT, he put out some stuff on social media yesterday, particularly he was talking about the par 317th and just how difficult that can play. He said he hit a four iron in there yesterday, which for him, a four iron is probably equivalent because wind it's probably 235, maybe even 240, somewhere in that range, maybe longer if he really cracks it. So he spoke to the media about his approach to this golf course uh, and, amongst other things, trying to replicate the level of performance that he had at the Players, another Pete Dye golf course at the TPC uh, Stadium course. So for Justin Thomas, the whole discussion comes up about the attributes of length because so much was made about the fact that the golf course is playing upwards to 7,800 and change. But lots of times this golf course, because even though it has that length, it doesn't play that long because of the way that it's laid out, because it's more of a linksy style with the, with the heavy sand base, especially if some of these holes are downwind. But where there's downwind, there's upwind as well. So you have to be versatile in your approach. Here is JT talking about all of that and more. It would definitely help if I hit it like I did on the weekend of the players. I, I like my chances, but... It's it's just it, it's so difficult about this place, and I'm very very happy and also fortunate that I came Sunday morning to play, because it's uh, it was a totally opposite win than it's been the last two days. So I was able to, I played 18 on Sunday and then played nine the last two days. So I've I've seen the golf course in two completely opposite wins. So that I think um, that's definitely helpful for me who didn't play in 2012. But at the end of the day, you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, when you're this close to the water, you can get it when it just really flips, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat. So you could play a group of holes into the wind, and then it could switch, and you could play the next set of holes into the wind. But it really just um, – it could be one of those weeks where you could get a late early, early late draw where it could one could be great, one could, one could be uh, a lot worse. But at the end of the day, you definitely are going to have to strike your ball solid and consistently to be able to control the flight and the distance – to at least uh, keep it on the golf course at some times, but uh, be able to hit fairways and greens. It's tough because you could you could argue literally every part of the game. I mean, if uh, to me it would be between driving and putting. Uh, I think hitting the balls well off the tee and putting it in fairways is going to be huge because then you can control the flight, control the distance, the spin trajectory a lot more than the rough or the waste areas. Um, then, you know, it's just being able to have that control. But it just when it gets this windy, you're just not going to be able to hit all the greens and you're not going to be able to chip it up like this, you know, whereas you might get a wind gust and it goes to four feet instead of a foot and a half or goes to eight feet instead of three feet. And being able to make those par-saving putts uh, are, are really the momentum builders and, and savers, I guess. I, I noticed it last week when someone sent me a scorecard and I saw that the back nine was 4,000 yards and I think I – actually laughed out loud uh, when I saw it because I was looking at the, the numbers. But it's it, they, can't, they can't possibly play it that long. I mean, unless they get a day where there's absolutely no wind. But, I mean, the holes that are going to be back downwind when it comes back into the wind, they just can't. I mean, they, they can't play 14, that par 3, back uh, if, it's, if you have this wind today. I mean, guys are going to be literally hitting driver on that hole um, unless they – PGA wants seven-hour rounds, I, I, I wouldn't advise it. So uh, it's, yes, it is extremely long, and it, and it plays all of its yardage, even with the tees are moved up when the holes are into the wind. But I, I think Ricky, I was talking to about it last night, said it very well to where they have that length and they need the tees because, uh, I mean, 
for example, the par five number seven, I mean, I think it's 590 yards or something. And I had eight iron in today. I mean, when it gets this windy and severe as the wind can get out here, they need those tees because the 590 yards can play 500 or 490 yards when you get that much wind. And then same thing when you go back into the wind, they might need to move the tee up to 420 yards to play 520. So, um, but yes, it is very intimidating looking at the scorecard. JT will be playing at 8.33 a.m. tomorrow morning alongside of Brooks and Rory McIlroy. Speaking of Rory McIlroy, I uh, just want to remind everybody, Rory McIlroy, obviously, as you guys know, loves the Travelers Championship. Travelerschampionship.com. They are doing pre-ticket sales right now if you're interested in being at TPC River Highlands coming up next month. And they have special access for kids and for frontline workers and for military as well. So TravelersChampionship.com for more information. Rory, when he won here in 2012, won by eight strokes, which at the time was the, the record. He set the record at that time, I should say of uh, the all-time win margin at the PGA Championship. So for Rory McIlroy, obviously he's Rory, and he covers a lot of ground when he speaks because he's so honest addressing the media. So I always find that his comments are absolutely fascinating. You just heard me say that he'll be playing at 8.33 a.m. tomorrow morning alongside of Brooks and JT. So it's a great start to the PGA Championship in terms of some marquee groups. It's a major, and it's the strongest field of the year with 99 of the top 100 in the world. So let's find out what Rory is thinking about heading into this major. You know, I played great here last time, obviously, and, um, you know, won my first PGA and my second major. But um, just because I did that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I'm going to find it any easier this week than anyone else. It's, it's, a, it's a really tough test especially when the wind's blowing like this, those last few holes out there um, are brutal. And uh, it's going to be a great test. And, um, but, yeah, look, I've maybe got some be better memories and better vibes here than, than most of the other guys do. And um, that's obviously nice, but I'm not sure it's going to enable me to, to play any better. But, um, you know, it is, it is nice to be back. Rory, uh, first of all, was there a proper celebration after Quail Hollow? And what did that do for you now that you've had time to reflect on it, getting that win? Uh, no. Um, no, I got on the plane at about uh, 7.45 on Sunday night, got home probably around 10, um, and that put Poppy to bed, and I took a shower and went to bed myself. I was exhausted. So uh, not really. I had a, my mom and dad came around our house on um, Monday just to, see me and but like no it was sort of uh had a couple I took a couple of days off at the start of the week actually because my neck was still a little stiff and I wanted to just make sure that that cleared out and then started to practice a little more on um Wednesday leading up to to this week but um no like I said at the time it was a great start it was a great um sort of validation that I'm working on the right things but it was you know, it was just a, a step in the process. It was wonderful to get the win, but um, even if I had a came away from Quill without winning, uh, I think I still would have been very encouraged with the sort of golf that I played. Uh, hey, Roy, before your win at Quill Hollow, was there perhaps a bit of time where you might have lost belief in yourself? And if so, how'd you get through it? Yeah, I don't... I, I don't um, Yeah, not not belief in myself and belief that I couldn't do it again, but it's more the um, 
it's the short, I think when you, when you get into those scenarios, it's very easy just to, to think short term, think of quick fixes, think of, okay, what can I do to try to get this better for next week or where you really have to take a step back and try to look at the big picture and be like, okay, you know, what do I need to do to, you know, be in the place I want to be in in six months time? And then that takes pressure off yourself. You're like, okay, this is a gradual process and sort of take it step by step. I think when you're in that place of searching, it's, it's all very short-term thinking. And instead of just thinking of the long-term a little bit, seeing the bigger picture, and um, that's sort of really what I've tried to do. And that's why I keep saying that this is, you know, Quail was awesome. It was great to get a win, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking way beyond that. And, and I think that's why, you know, it's funny when you, you sort of think that way, something like that just sort of happens to fall into your lap. So the, it's almost like the less you try, the, the more things sort of go your way. Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, we're best friends. You know, that's sort of the relationship we have. So it's very, very hard for me to call Harry my caddy because that sort of, sort of puts down the relationship a little bit. I never really want to say my caddy Harry. I, that's just sort of feels weird for me to say that. Um, but it ha- he's, you know, like this was supposed to be a short-term thing back in 2017, and um, I ended up really enjoying it, really liking it, and, and you know, he, you know, we, we made the decision that this was going to be a long-term um, thing, and it's, it's worked out great. We've had six wins together, um, and I think the reason I wanted to single Harry out as well, I feel like he gets some... Um, some negativity around the relationship that's very um, unfair, uncalled for. Um, people don't know him, don't really know me. Um, they sort of see things from the outside and from their own perspective, but they don't really know. So I wanted to make a, you know, I wanted to make a point of, you know, Harry was. 100% the person that told me not to hit that ball in 18 in the creek, and if it wasn't for him, I probably would have lost the tournament because I'd be probably still trying to hack it out of there. So, but I, I'm like a dog. If I see a golf ball, I want to hit it. Or, you know, I'm like, I just, it's there. It's like someone puts a football in front of me, I'm going to want to kick it. So I saw the ball, I wanted to hit it, and he's like, let's just think about this. So um, that was the reason I wanted to single it out because it was a big decision, and, and he kept a cool head when maybe I wasn't in the best place. Um, and yeah, and because of that unfair criticism that I think he's gotten over the last couple of years, I wanted to just make a point of, you know, we know what we're doing out there. If, you know, it's all these armchair critics or, you know. Was, it, was there maybe occasional annoyance or irritation at spectators before that you would now not yeah, care I, about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> love the mashed potatoes, guys, again. It's like, I don't even care about the stupid comments anymore. I'm just happy that everyone's back here. Just wondering, uh, what were you seeking when you reached out to uh, Bob Rotella, and um, what did you what did you get from from those the, that chat that you had with them? A lobotomy. Going on from that, what? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, no, I just yeah, I you know I, I'd worked with Bob before um, back in two thousand and ten. Actually, worked with him in the lead up to winning Quail Hollow for the first time, and then. 
Yeah, I mean, I've worked with Brad Faxon for the last three years, and Brad speaks so highly of Bob, and um, he just thought it would be a good idea for us to get together and have a chat, and um, we ended up spending like five hours together uh, at the Grove one day and had a really good time, and uh, it just sort of went from there. Um, look, it's nothing that I haven't heard before, but Bob just puts it in a way that um, is so simple and can make you laugh and some of the stories that he can tell and some of the stories that you can relate to yourself in some ways. Um, it, was, it was a really fun day and I, I got a lot out of it. I talked to him on the phone uh, on Saturday. So yeah, we're, we're in touch and we're, you know, it's hard to say that we're working together, but we're, you know, we're, we're in, in contact every, every week and, you know, I really value his input. All right, so that was Rory McIlroy, who will be teeing off, as you recall. He's playing alongside of Brooks and JT. 8.33 a.m. their tee time tomorrow morning. All these times are Eastern, as will be the times I'm about to go through with you, because there's a ton of coverage, and I'm not going to give it all to you at this time. I'm I'm doing it now because I promised you that I would. So I'm going to try to get through some of the, I don't know, highlights of the coverage. Let's see, tomorrow morning, Coverage starting at 7 a.m. on ESPN Plus. Featured group coverage, which will be four groups, starts at 7 a.m. as well on ESPN Plus. Uh, Featured whole coverage starts at 8.15, same. Uh, Sports Center at the PGA on ESPN. Remember, there's ESPN Plus, there's ESPN uh, that will be covering. And, And Dom, do you know when I say ESPN Plus on my information that I'm giving the world, does that also include the PGA app and PGA.com? Uh, yes, PGA.com okay. will be carrying a majority of the digital stuff as well. Um, but I believe it's like technically like an ESPN Plus production, I guess you could call it. Sure. Okay, I just was curious because I, I downloaded the new app last night, and I don't have ESPN Plus. I know that you have ESPN Plus. I'm just curious if I'm going to be able to see all this stuff. So I carry on. Sports centers, I mentioned, will be on ESPN from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. from the PGA. The first round coverage on ESPN proper will be at 1 p.m. tomorrow, at 1 p.m. tomorrow. And then in the nighttime at 8 p.m., CBS Sports Network has the clubhouse report. On Friday, the schedule will be as follows at 7 a.m. second round coverage on ESPN+. Plus. So, too, will be featured group coverage for four groups there as well. Featured whole coverage of 16, 17, and 18. ESPN Plus at 8.15 a.m. on Friday. Sports Center at the PGA will be from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Second round coverage of the 103rd PGA Championship will be on ESPN, the main channel, at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday. Okay, on Saturday, third round coverage begins on ESPN Plus as well as featured group coverage at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Third round coverage on ESPN will begin at 10 a.m. on Saturday. 10 a.m. on Saturday. And then CBS's coverage of the third round on Saturday will begin at 1 p.m. And that's not only on CBS, but it's also on Paramount Plus, just to give you all the digital streams that are out there as well. On Sunday, similar schedule, but I'm going to go through it with you nonetheless. Final round coverage on ESPN Plus, as well as featured group coverage, starts at 8 a.m. ESPN's final round coverage of the PGA Championship starts at 10 a.m. CBS's coverage of the final round 
of the PGA Championship starts at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And again, that's on CBS and that is on Paramount+. Plus. A ton to go through with you. Cannot wait until we are together, together again tomorrow morning because play will be underway at the 103rd PGA Championship. Uh, thank you to David for joining us on the program. Uh, absolute legend. I love hearing from those guys. You will hear from a few more players tomorrow morning, some, some best ofs that we'll put together from these press conferences. But mostly we're going to be giving you reports coming in on the leaderboard of what's going on at the PGA Championship, and then we will quickly get out of your way. Thank you so much for your company today. Looking forward to it again tomorrow. Until then, be well. Goodbye for now.